I don't remember the first time that I shifted my experience of Mother's Day, but I'll never experience it the same way. Today is as wide and as diverse as you are. There are so many different experiences of Mother's Day. And sadly, what our culture does is it kind of just rams them all into one experience. And life isn't like that. There are some of you in the room today that this is the hardest Mother's Day you've ever experienced. Because this is the first Mother's Day without your mom. And we wanted you to know that, that we grieve with you today. There are others of you who struggle today because you're reminded of the children you no longer have. Either they didn't make it into this world or they were here for far too short a time. And we want you to know that we grieve with you. There are others of you today that you wish your kids were saying things like that about you right now, and they're not. And so we want you to know that your work is not forgotten and it's not overlooked. There's some of you that have a really hard time with Mother's Day because at the hands of your mom, you were hurt and abused. And we want to acknowledge you and acknowledge that not every mom fits the hallmark image of mom. There's some of you in the room today that you're parenting children that weren't your own. You're a grandparent, you're a foster parent, you're a step-parent, you're an adoptive parent, and you have embarked on a heroic adventure. And if you're tired and exhausted today, you have our love and admiration. There are others of you that you're parenting children that aren't your own. You have no biological or legal relationship with them, and yet you're helping families raise those kids. You may be mothering someone who's an adult who never had a mother before, and what you're doing is incredible both in this life and in eternity. And there are some of you today that are estranged from your mom, and you wish you were closer to her than you are today. Whatever your experience of Mother's Day today, we want you to know that you are not overlooked, that you're seen, and that it's okay to come to Mother's Day today from that place. Whatever your experience of Mother's Day on that wide range, I want to pray for you this morning. God, thank you so much for the people who had courage to come to church on Mother's Day today. God, there are so many people who just would rather stay home it's too hard. The memories and emotions this brings up are too raw and too painful. And you say in the book of Lamentations through your prophet to a people who were mourning and grieving a loss that they could not imagine, much less comprehend, that your mercies were new every morning. And so we thank you for new mercy today. And for those whom are not experiencing today as a celebration. We pray that they would lean in and drink deep of your mercy and grace for today and know that there is more than they could ever need for today and tomorrow too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I want to begin today by talking to you about revolutions and revolutionaries. As a student of history, I know, and you probably know this, that, that we haven't always looked at our world the way that we do today. 
We haven't always seen the world in the ways that we do today. And that's what's so fascinating to me is that ideas which were crazy and out there at one point, we take for granted today. For example, consider the work of Nicholas Copernicus, this lovely looking looking dude right here. Look at that haircut right there. That's, That's awesome. Copernicus had the boldness to declare to the world that the earth was not the center of our galaxy. The sun was. And that everything revolved around the sun. You may think that's a pretty nominal or tame idea, but in his day, he put his life on the line to say that. And heliocentrism is now taken for granted today. Madame Curie is the reason that when your child or you yourself breaks a bone, we can see inside your body and tell what happened. Her work with radiology led to two Nobel Prizes. And she was the reason that our soldiers in World War I could have mobile x-rays taken on the field. This guy right here, William Wilberforce, became convinced that the slavery and the trafficking of humans was a pox on the nation and empire of Britain. And so he gave his life decade after decade after decade to the abolishment of the slave trade. And three days before he died, he got word that all that he had fought for had come true. Steve Jobs rejected the idea that no one needed a computer. And so now there's one on every desk and on every table and in your pocket. You didn't know you needed a thousand songs in your pocket, but Steve did. And this guy right here named Howard Schultz was a coffee pot salesman who wondered why so many people in Seattle were buying his coffee pots. And he went up there to figure it out and he discovered this small chain of coffee roasters. He bought them and renamed them Starbucks. And if you had a high quality cup of coffee this morning, you have Howard to thank. And for that, I say, God bless you and praise the Lord. You may not like Starbucks, but if you had good local coffee and you're a snob, then he's a reason that your coffee shop has a reason to be in business today. All of these are revolutionaries whose ideas changed our world. I'd like to add one more to the list. This guy named Jesus. What's fascinating about Jesus is I don't think anyone in the first century could have comprehended that 2,000 years later, we'd still be talking about the words he said. No matter who it is, the idea that words would last two millennia blows your mind. I'm just hoping you remember my sermon tomorrow. And yet Jesus' words have lasted 2,000 years. And he said radical revolutionary things like this. The last will be first and the first will be last. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Interesting words for Mother's Day. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are radical ideas then and they're radical ideas now. And they challenge the way that we look at the world. And yet, I've been thinking about these radical words of Jesus. Because we live in a world that anyone, no matter how religious or spiritual or non-religious or atheistic you are, many people 
of a variety of worldviews would accept these words, the world is not as it should be. Many of us have said these words. Some of you have even said these words today in light of your Mother's Day experience. The world is not as it should be. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Well, let me give you just a short list of my places where I see the world not as it should be. Famine, divorce, poverty, corrupt leaders, wars, terrorism, abuse, hunger, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world in Indonesia went to church Sunday morning, yesterday, and before the service was done, bombs exploded, changing their experience of church that day. The world is not as it should be. And yet we look at Jesus' teachings and we go, man, he sees the world in an upside-down way. He sees things differently. I've been thinking about the words of Jesus, and a question has struck me. It's this question here. What if we're the ones who are upside-down? What if instead of looking at Jesus and going, man, he sees the world weird, what if we stepped back and asked the question, maybe Jesus sees the one, is the one who sees clearly, and maybe we're the one who sees things poorly? Because if our world is not as it should be and we're part of that world, then maybe that has warped and adapted our perspective. There's one thing that I want to share with you this morning that I hope you remember that frames up our entire message. And it's this idea that the upside down kingdom of Jesus turns our perspectives right side up. The upside down kingdom of Jesus turns our perspectives right side up. This morning, I want to talk to you about how Jesus turns our perspective to the way that it should be. And that's what revolutionaries do. They help us who see the world in an inaccurate way to turn our perspective right side up. And I'm going to share with you how Jesus does that this morning. And the tool that he's going to use today that we're going to look at is called a parable. And a parable is simply a story or an allegory designed to teach principles to those whose hearts are open. In one of his conversations with his, with his disciples, Jesus was asked, why are you always telling me stories? Why don't you just teach principles and thoughts and ideas? And he says, I teach in parables so that those whose hearts are open hear and understand And those whose hearts are closed don't understand. And I think the same thing is true for this room this morning. I'm inevitably, over the next 30 minutes, going to say something that challenges, provokes, or convicts you. I know that because these words have already done the same thing to me. And you're going to have a choice. You can sit there and pretend that what I'm talking about has nothing to do with you. It's not relevant for you. And just endure this 30 minutes. Or you can allow it to come in. You get to decide which person you are in the parable. Are you those that the principles are going to speak to your heart because your heart is open? Or are you a person who's going to be closed, who's not going to get it or understand it? Jesus didn't decide whether his hearts, the hearts of his audience were open or closed. They did. But he told his parables in a way that if their hearts were open, they would get it. They would understand it. And today, from these parables, I'm going to share five kingdom perspectives with you. The first one is found in Matthew 13. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is the first of the four biographies of Jesus we call the Gospels in the Bible. Matthew has more teaching on the parables than, and on the kingdom of God than any of 
the others, which is why it's my favorite gospel of them all. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells seven parables. We're not going to look at them all today. But in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, this is what we read. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Some of you will have this experience in your house this spring. I didn't plant weeds. Where did these weeds come from? And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather the weeds? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The first principle I want to share with you this morning is this, that if we're going to live in the kingdom of God, we need to live with trust, depending on Jesus to make all things right. We live with trust depending on Jesus to make all things right. Now, if you want to, when you go home today, go back to Matthew 13. Jesus kind of unpacks this parable in some ways that, that we're not, not going to get into today. But basically what he says is that in his kingdom, there are true and untrue people. There are true and untrue believers. There is real, genuine faith, and then there is not genuine faith. And in the moment, we can try ourselves to slice and dice it. He said, but trust me, in the end, I'll make it all right. I'll separate it. And this is an important and powerful lesson for us because our tendency is not to trust Jesus to make all things right. It's to do it ourselves. To not trust him, but to trust in us. And as a pastor, one of the things I've learned is that the hardest word for people to use in relationship to God is an S word. And it's the word surrender. Some of you are here today and this is your hang up. You've been coming to church for some time. Maybe your mom dragged you here today and she said, hey, all I want for not Christmas, but Mother's Day is for you to come to church with me. Maybe you've been coming for a few weeks and this word surrenders your hang up. You, you can believe in Jesus. You can be here. You can see places he wants you to take steps. But the idea of surrendering control of your life to him, no way. This is my friend Tony's story. For three years, we walked together and finally I just said, Tony, what's your hang up? What's your deal? He said, I just don't want to let go of my life. I've been living life my way for 40 years and I don't want to surrender. I appreciated his honesty. And I think he's got a lot of company. See, what Jesus is saying is he says, in my kingdom, I want you to trust me and trust that I will make things right. And so following Jesus means moving more and more to trust in him. And it moves less and less towards us controlling things ourselves. Let me illustrate it for you. Following Jesus looks like this. You trust him more and you control things less. You shift from you being in control to trusting him to be in control. And following Jesus doesn't mean you're always going to understand things, but you are going to have to trust him. And if you have to be in control of your life, you're really going to struggle to follow Jesus. 
And not only Jesus, but the area of trust is something that I think we wrestle with as parents. Because our kids don't always do what we want them to do. I've only got six and three and three and I'm already there. Like I, I told you what to do. I prepared you for what you to do. And you walked on stage and you found a microphone and you started singing in it. That was my son, by the way. We, we moved my other son away from the microphone, but I have three kids and there's two mics and the math is really good. So inevitably one of them is going to find a microphone to sing into. But here's the thing with your kids. You can love them or you can control them, but you can't do both. You can love them or you can control them, but you can't do both. You can love God or you can control God, but you can't do both. And I don't know anybody who wakes up and goes, man, I hope someone tries to control me today. No, we wake up and go, I want to be loved. And if you wake up and you don't want to be controlled, and when someone tries to control you, you give them the stiff arm, you know, the Heisman, you know, then how does God feel? When he's calling us to trust him and we go, no, I just want to control you. Now, in the kingdom of God, there are going to be things that don't make sense, that you don't understand, that you would rather control and fix on your own. And God says, let me make it all right. Trust me that in the end, I'll sort it all out. You can trust God or you can control God, but you can't do both. Just in the next verse, Jesus continues into the next parable where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it's grown larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. These two parables teach us our second principle which is that we hold on to hope, a vision beyond what we can see today. If we're going to live life in the kingdom, we're going to need hope because our our vision today is not big enough. In this parable, Jesus begins by talking about a mustard seed. If you've ever seen one, it is the smallest of all seeds. And when planted in the ground, you'd have no idea by looking at it, the size of the tree it's going to produce and quite rapidly. You bake a loaf of bread, you take a little bit of leaven or yeast and you put it in the bread and you don't see the chemistry happening in the bread that allows the bread to rise. But it changes things. And in these two parables, Jesus is teaching us some fundamental dynamics about his kingdom. That his kingdom is invisible and visible, it's internal and it's external. The kingdom of God is these two things. It's invisible, like leaven in bread, but it's visible, you can see the effects of it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground. It's internal, and yet it's about to have external consequences. And if the kingdom of God was just visible and external, then none of us would need any hope. None of us would need any vision. Because we would always see what God was doing. You'd go, yep, he's over there. Yep, he's over there. Yep, I see him moving over there. But the reason why we need hope is that the kingdom of God is also invisible and internal, and we can't always see it. 
And he was teaching his disciples, don't always trust in what you can see because what you can see visibly and externally doesn't tell the full story. And so if you're going to live as a person in the kingdom of God under his reign and rule with him, you're going to have to live in tension between these two. We live in a world that doesn't like tension. It likes either or. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, CNN, Fox News, for, against. But the kingdom of God is living in the tension between his kingdom being invisible, you can't see it, and visible, you can. Internal, inside human hearts. External, visible in the world. And this challenges me as a pastor because my temptation, like many other pastors today, is to judge the success of what I'm doing by today. How many of you were here today? What the offering was today? How I feel today? And yet what's happening today doesn't tell the full story. Not even close. And I have to remind myself that God's kingdom is not just what I see today. It's what I can't see. It isn't just what's happening out here. It's what's happening in here. And we have to hold on to hope, trusting that God is at work in ways we can't see today, that we can't understand today. And if you're a mom, that's the message you need today. Are you a good parent? I don't know. Are you being a good mom today? I don't know. And I'm not sure you can either. Because today isn't the full testimony of your parenting. Neither is yesterday and neither is tomorrow. There's a bigger story happening. Your kids may yell at you today and say, I hate you. And five years later, they may thank you. Your child may appear as if they have it all together and they're doing everything great. And yet internally, they may be fighting a battle you know nothing about. You cannot judge yourself to be a success or a failure just based upon what you can see today. It's God's kingdom. It's internal and it's external. It's invisible and it's visible. And God's working in ways you don't understand. So that should be comforting for those of you who feel like you're a failure. Should be sobering for those of you who feel like you're killing it. That humility is where we need to live. He continues right after that in another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, the man goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is also like a a merchant who's in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The third principle is this, that we exchange our loves for new loves shaped by our king. In God's kingdom, we exchange our loves that we currently have that we're born into for new loves shaped by our king in his kingdom. See, both of these parables about a man looking for pearls and a man looking for treasure reveal that the kingdom of God is a valuable thing. And so we have to choose between the kingdom of God's values and our values today. Because at times they are at war with one another. What God values and what God cares about are often very different than our world cares about. 
And what Jesus is saying here in this story is that the kingdom is of great value. It's worth giving up all you have to get it. You know what I've learned? What we value is revealed in what we're willing to sacrifice. Don't tell me what you value. Or you can tell me all you want. I just don't believe you. I want to see why you're sacrificing for it. Because talk is cheap. Anybody can say they value something. What happens when push comes to shove? What are you willing to give everything for? That's what you truly value. And that's why most of us avoid crisis, suffering, difficulty, yet it is the only time in life where we really truly know what matters most to us. It doesn't make or break us, it reveals us. And many of us would say that, yeah, of course, God is the most important thing in my life. Yeah, the kingdom is the most important thing in my life. Yes, honoring God is most important in my life. But when push comes to shove, many of us go, Scott, the ends justify the means. So I'll do whatever it takes. This is even a conversation we're having in our world today. We're not having it. The world's having it about us. Do followers of Jesus really value what they value? Or do they value power? And are they willing to do whatever it takes to keep and maintain power? See, we're not living in a world where we're not the home team anymore. We're the visiting team. And if you're a parent or a grandparent today, your kids or grandkids will grow up in a world that's very different than yours. And the temptation will be in the places where you feel threatened and afraid to fight for and grab power and do whatever it takes to keep it. even if it means compromising your most treasured values. Do we love being in power? Do we love being in control? Do we love having it our way? Or do we love his way more? See, in the kingdom, we exchange our loves for new loves. And sometimes the sacrifices that we make, we should step back and go, what did I just do? What did I just give up? Why did I do that? Maybe you're learning something about yourself even in the process. Jesus continues to a really well-known passage in Matthew chapter 18. Many of you know this passage because you've had a fight with somebody before. And you've gone to Matthew 18 to figure out how to do it. But right after that passage about how to resolve disagreement, Jesus tells this parable, which I think so often gets overlooked. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. The equivalent of that is tens of millions of dollars, more than a man could ever make in a lifetime. Because he couldn't pay it, his master ordered him to be sold and then with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. Thank God, Discover and Visa don't take that route today. So the servant falls on his knees, imploring the king, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and he forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. It's rather extreme. 
So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. We just heard those words, didn't we? And he refused, and he put that man in prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The fourth principle I want to share with you this morning is that we embrace gratitude and generosity, giving freely of what we received. We embrace gratitude and generosity, giving freely of what we received. This parable is often used when teaching on forgiveness because it's a reminder that in the kingdom of God, Jesus connects the forgiveness we've received from him to the forgiveness he wants us to give away. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching us that the test that we'll all face of whether we've received something will be found in the giving. The test of receiving is found in the giving. What do I mean? The test that you've really received something is if you're able to give it away. Because this man, the villain in the story, wasn't able to. He couldn't forgive someone else because he truly hadn't been forgiven himself. Jesus tells us all throughout the Gospels, just as you have freely been given, freely give. Just as you've freely received, freely give. This is why throughout the Gospels, Jesus chastises the religious people, the Pharisees. And he says, you rightly tithe and give 10% of your money to the temple, yet you miss the greater parts of the law, love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. See, some of us get proud and we go, man, I give 10% of all that I make to the Lord. And yet, if you hold back on mercy and grace and forgiveness, you haven't truly received. Jesus is saying we embrace with gratitude what we've been given from God and we generously give it away as a sign that we've received it. This is why Jesus' words are so hard. He says, let's just go back to it real quick. My heavenly father will also do this to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He says this hard word that says the forgiveness I'm giving to you is connected to the forgiveness you gave away. And if you can't forgive someone else and you can't let go of that burden, then maybe you haven't received my forgiveness after all. It's a difficult word. I saved my favorite parable for last because I think it's maybe the most convicting one of them all. And it's in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which is basically a day's wages in that culture, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, which is basically nine o'clock, the first hour of the day was six, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever, I get, whatever is right, I'll give to you. He does the same thing at noon. 
He does the same thing at three, and he does the same thing at five, all for a workday ending at 6 p.m. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. There's the plot twist. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And there's the line we heard earlier. So the last will be first and the first last. Jesus is basically saying this. In his kingdom, we choose humility. Since our presence in the kingdom is by his grace, not our goodness. This is the parable that I have found over the years of Jesus's people hate the most. We don't like it. Because all of us consider ourselves the people who were hired first. When in fact, we were the people who were hired last. And Jesus calls us in this passage to a humility. And I, I love this definition of humility, which says that humility is a sober-minded view of one's own importance and true nature. Humility is to be sober about yourself. And the opposite is to be drunk on yourself. Many of us know people who are drunk on themselves. And if we're honest, we've all had moments when we're drunk on ourselves too. When we don't accurately see our own importance and true nature. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, he says, I've offered you my grace and it doesn't matter when you come into it because you came in through my grace. So there's no place for pride or arrogance in the kingdom of heaven, which is so fascinating because pride and arrogance are so prevalent in the church today. That's why this parable is so powerful and important because it humbles us. It doesn't matter if you're hired at the beginning of the day and he says, I'm going to give you my grace. And it doesn't matter if he hires you one hour before the end of the day and says, I'm going to give you my grace. We all get the same thing. None of us are more worthy of it. None of us are more deserving of it. And none of us have done anything more to merit it than anybody else. And it sobers us. And it humbles us and it reminds us that the the essence of what Jesus is doing is not anything we could have done or earned or deserved. It's all grace. Which again, as Americans, is really hard for us to swallow because we like the idea of earning it and deserving it. And we have to wrap our heads around that if you're going to understand Jesus and live in his kingdom, there are things that are going to go against your modern and American sensibilities. See, what's, what's humbled me in life are three experiences. Marriage, parenting, and pastoring. Because all three have humbled me. All three have shown me the places where I'm drunk on myself and need to be sobered. And some of you in here today who are moms, you had this long list of the things you were never going to do. All those moms you weren't going to be like. All those people you silently judged on Pinterest, 
or Facebook. And then guess what happened? I told myself I was never going to put my kids on a leash like those parents at Disneyland. And then I had two twins and we leashed those suckers up right away. See, that's the fun, humble moment. The not fun, humble moment is the moment that you realize that you got drunk on yourself. You forgot what this is all about. That you needed grace when you started. And you don't wean yourself off of grace. You need more and more every day because you realize more and more how broken you are and how in need you are. Let me wrap up with Tim Keller's quote here. He says, The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. And when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record rather than ours for our relationship to God, the kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. If you take these lists of things, trust and hope and grace and generosity and gratitude, and humility, and you add those to your to-do list, you'll fail. They'll suffer you, they'll suffocate you and suppress you and beat you down with more things you cannot do. But if you realize that you need God's grace every day and you enter into relationship with him, then a power is going to come upon you and begin to work through you and make you capable of doing things beyond what you could imagine. Before we leave today, I want to share a couple of next steps with you and then back of your handout. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to identify the perspective which is least present in you of these five. Is it trust? Is it hope? Is it your loves? Is it gratitude and generosity? Or is it humility? If you don't know, ask the person sitting next to you. I promise you they've got an idea. Maybe you could trade back and forth. Number two, what if you reread the corresponding parable this week and really asked God, what do you want to say to me through this? And then number three, I want to encourage you to write a letter to Jesus this week about your flaws and his grace. Identify the places where you're becoming more aware of your brokenness and your imperfection. Maybe as a parent, all the letters you're getting today, maybe you wrote a letter to God about yourself. Places you feel like you're blowing it and missing it. And then write to Jesus about where his grace covers over those and how you're accepting his grace there. I've never been a mom before. I'll never be a mom. But the moms that I admire the most are not the ones who have it all together. They're the moms who are the most genuine and honest and real about their imperfections and who embrace God's grace the most. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.cornerstone.com prescottcornerstone.com